From Founders Excel, it's Cap Table Cast, a new podcast about how the earliest stage founders took the first steps towards building their dream. One line of code, customer call, and pre-seed check at a time. There was a point right after COVID-19 hit where I, I firmly believe that Eris was going to collapse, right? Because all of our corporate clients stopped talking to us. Um, you know, th there was a, a sort of a really meaningful market crash um, and uh, I just didn't know if we were going to make it through. Um, and, and in those moments, um, the only thing you can really do is just bet on yourself. Today on the cap table, Michael Yaffe, co-founder of Arist. Arist is a YC-backed text message-based learning platform disrupting the way students, employees, and first responders worldwide are trained and educated. I'm Carlo Kobe, student at Harvard College, currently on leave, working as an entrepreneur in residence at Mirantix, the world's first AI venture studio. And I'm Scott Smith, VC Scout, co-founding partner of Founders Excel, Cornell student on leave, angel investor, and co-founder of an edtech startup. It's September 10th, 2020, and on the first edition of the Cap Table Cast, we're excited to welcome Michael Yaffe from Arist. Hi, Michael. Hey, Carlo. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Yes, um, so we're really excited to have you here and, and learn a little bit about the venture um, that you've been building. Um, could you share a little bit uh, uh, about yourself and sort of where the idea for Arist came from? Yeah, sure thing. Um, so so uh, very quickly, my background is in the nonprofit space. Uh, prior to Eris, I founded an organization called Tile.org, uh, which today is one of the world's largest entrepreneurship education nonprofits. Um, so I started Tile when I was 15, uh, just because you know both my parents were refugees and I realized that education was my only way out. Um, and I was particularly obsessed with entrepreneurship education um, and, and wanted to have access to more conversations with the entrepreneurs that I knew. And, um, and so, you know, Tile was initially just a free live series of conversations between students and entrepreneurs in Portland, Oregon. Um, and I scaled that uh, from one location when I was 15 to about 450 locations in over 50 countries by the time I was 18. Um, and what happened is I started realizing that our most successful location was in the war zone in Yemen. And I couldn't understand why we were getting more students to come to our events in Yemen than our events in you know, Portland or Boston or LA. And what I started realizing was that in Yemen, uh, because their educational system had been more or less completely defunct for over four years, and because internet access was so limited, um, you know, video courses were completely inaccessible and students were desperate for additional educational opportunities. And so these live events that we were hosting were, you know, were sort of the number one source of, of you know, additional educational opportunities that these students had. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and essentially I, I became obsessed with the question of how do we deliver educational content in Yemen in a way that's frictionless and accessible, ended up realizing that almost everybody has access to text message and WhatsApp. Um, and then uh, I ended up working with a few of my professors to create the first text message course. Um, and so at Eris, uh, you know, we, uh, we believe that text message based courses are fundamentally more effective, accessible and frictionless um, for, for a variety of use cases. Um, and so we've developed a platform where any organization can, rap can rapidly create text message courses and launch them to their employees or remote audiences. Um, and we're now used by everybody from the state of California to Pointer uh, to DuPont. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and uh, ju just wrapped up uh, participation in, in the, the summer uh, 20 YC batch. Um, so yeah, that, that, that's sort of a quick background on, on, on me and Eris. 
Well, it's very interesting that, that you talk about your experiences in, in Yemen and with Tile.org. So what the common thread that I think that unites both of those stories is your passion for impact and entrepreneurship is fundamentally, you know, about passion. So, you know, you have two co-founders at Eris. Could you talk about how, you know, you found a similar match to, to, your, to your passion for impact um, with your co-founders and how you met them? Yeah, sure thing. So, so for everything that I've ever, ever done up to this point, I, I, I tend to always start my um, you know, the organizations that, that I end up creating as, as projects, right? I firmly believe that, um, you know, the best, uh, the best companies usually start off as, as a little bit of a joke, right? Where, where you're really not sure if the idea can work and it's something that you find interesting, but, but aren't fully committed to. Um, so, so with, with, uh, with Eris, what happened is, you know, I, I had initially, you know, I had this idea of teaching people via text message, um, and ended up approaching one of my best friends, Riley, um, who helped me create the first text message course and who helped me, you know, launch it and sort of, you know, gather enough data to show that this was a medium that actually worked. Um, and what, what happened is, um, you know, my, my, my two current co-founders, uh, Ryan and Joe, um, R Ryan had just spent some time, you know, we, we lived together on the same floor at Addison College and Ryan had just spent some time teaching uh, entrepreneurship in Tanzania. And so when I, when I told him that, you know, what Riley and I were doing with text message courses, he instantly got it, right? And he instantly understood how, how great of an impact this could have. Um, and so he, he actually, he sort of started hounding me for opportunities to, to like work on Eris, even though Eris really didn't exist yet, right? So, so he, he, um, he ended up, you know, creating the, the second ever text message course and, and pretty much just offered to like help out, you know, for free, however he could, because uh, he really, really, like he really loved the idea. Um, you know, R Riley ended up going back to school because he realized that he wanted to pursue a PhD. Um, and, uh, and, and so essentially, you know, Ryan and I started just like working on, on, on Eris and, and sort of, you know, thinking through the idea more in depth. And one day we, we called up Joe, who was, you know, one of Ryan's childhood best friends, because we needed some help with, with you know, uh, building out an actual platform and trying to think through like how to hire people, stuff like that. Um, and Joe was like, oh, well, you know, why don't I just build it out? And so Joe built the first version of Eris within a few days. Um, and, uh, and, and for us, you know, we, we, uh, you know, we were all sort of not big fans of existing video courses and of the way that online training and, and learning was done currently. And so for us, we were just looking for, 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 for ways to differentiate that and, and actually make a tangible, measurable impact. Amazing. So, um, when you look back at sort of the, the way that you met your co-founders, um, what is what is sort of a moment where you realized, okay, this is this is someone that I feel comfortable building a business with? Um, was there was it just their immediate understanding of of the impact and the mission that you had? Was it the passion for the product, or um, do you think that it's that it's worth looking into these like semi scientific frameworks of? If you're the business guy, you need the tech guy um, that you that you hear, often hear propagated um, by sort of the traditional um, entrepreneurship stories. Yeah, sure thing. So, so, so I think the difficulty is is that you know when you're starting something as a college student, you're usually 18 or 19 or 20. You, you, you know, you have really no clue what the fuck you're doing. Um, and, and I think uh, that what what I realized pretty early on, because because I spent some time like thinking through like okay like. We need to hire somebody who's great at content. We need to hire somebody who's great at, um, you, you know, who's great at building out the exact type of platform that we need. And what I, what I started running into is the people that I felt most comfortable working with, right? Like my peers and my close friends um, really didn't have any of those skills, right? And, and my network was super limited. Um, and and what, what I started realizing is that, you know, at the early stage, it's really a matter of hiring people who can grow and learn super, super quickly. Right. Um, so R Ryan, for example, um, who, who now leads a lot of our content and customer success, 
um, you know, previously had very, very limited experience with developing, you know, content, especially learning and corporate training content, right? And, and had practically no experience with customer success um, or, or, or sales for that matter. Um, and, and, you know, I think that the reason, you know, the moment when I felt really comfortable bringing him on is when I realized like over the course of like just one or two months of working together, how quickly he was able to pick up new skills and how quickly he was able to adapt and fine tune, um, you know, the way that he operated. I mean, and the same thing applies to, to Joe, you know, um, Joe, Joe, who's our CTO, um, you, you know, the first version of the platform was, was super basic. It didn't look great. Um, and, and he just kind of like, you know, threw together. Uh, but Joe was able to very, very quickly understand, you know, how to build an enterprise level platform. Um, and, and I think it's just that speed of knowledge acquisition and, and that, that level of growth that, that you should look for when, when, when bringing somebody on to work with you. That, that's incredible. So, you know, Michael, you, you founded Arist as a sophomore at Babson. You have one year of college under your belt. You, you founded two companies previously, and then you're embarking on this incredible journey to disrupt education with Joe and Ryan. Um, so, you know, you've built the first version of the product in a couple of days. How did you balance the tension between being a founder and a student, or is that something that ever crossed your mind? Yeah, sure. So, so I, um, you know, a lot of VCs strongly believe that you can't possibly balance being a founder and a student at the same time. I, I strongly disagree, right? I, I mean, I, um, every organization that I founded so far, whether or not it's worked out well, um, you know, a, a, alongside, in, in between Tile and Ares, I, I also founded an organization called Energy.org, uh, which was like a, a short-lived environmental nonprofit. Environmental nonprofits are like the most cutthroat space ever, so I wouldn't recommend it to anybody. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it, it's essentially, you know, the, the thing is, is that w when you are a founder in school, um, you have a number of advantages that um, that may seem sort of counterintuitive, right? One is that you have access to an incredible network of experts, right? Like your professors are, you know, are, are, are usually brilliant people and can provide really, really phenomenal advice. Because really as, as a founder, the biggest question, especially a very early stage founder, the biggest question is like, what is the next step and what is the experiment that I, that I need to conduct um, and, and, and prove, right? Or, 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 or disprove. Um, like what 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 is the you know the, the hypothesis? Um, and professors are often really great at just at just you know helping you figure out how to design and structure the experiments that will help you get to the next step. Um, and, and and so for, for me, like I relied very heavily on, on my professors at Babson to to help us figure out like you know great we 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 have this idea where should you know how do we sell who do we sell to um, to the point where you know my professors uh, introduced us both to our earliest angel investors and to a really meaningful number of our initial customers, um, right? So they, they, were, they were super supportive. Um, the other thing is, is that, you know, as a college student, you have to really budget your time. Um, and, uh, and that also forces you, forces you to be really, really choosy with like how you spend your time, right? Because the reality is what I've noticed in a lot of early stage startups is people will like, you know, sort of pour their heart and time into it. Um, and, and they sort of spin their wheels very quickly, right? So, so they, they don't actually like, step back and think about like, what are like, I only have three hours to work on this today. What are the three to four tasks that I need to complete that will actually move me to the next step? And I think being in college, you know, you're forced to consider like, what is that next step? Um, you know, one thing that I'll add very quickly is like, you know, Emily Weiss at Glosser, who's an entrepreneur that I, that I respect an immense amount. She uh, kept her day job at Vogue until Glosser had, I believe 10 million followers, right? Um, which is which is crazy, right? So so it, it can be done, right? And 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 it can can certainly be done, especially in college. You you mentioned that a lot of people sort of jump head forward uh, into their ideas. Um, 
what what did it take for you to gain conviction um, about um, text message based learning uh, as a product idea and something that you really wanted to pursue further? Yeah, sure. So, so for for us, I think um, internally as a team, the qualification for dropping out or leaving school was like when we have a large enterprise client paying for the product, right? That's when we are comfortable leaving because that's when we feel that we're moving towards product market fit. Right up until that point, we felt no reason to leave, mainly because you know, like we 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 were in, in no rush necessarily. Um, so, so, so I I think uh, that 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 was sort of our our moment of conviction. Um, up up until you know up until that point we we sort of knew what experiments we needed to 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 conduct in order to to achieve that next step so part of that was um you know we we would dedicate a lot of time to just like piloting courses with with clients and convincing companies in the Boston area to like try out a text message course or build a text message course and just get user feedback um, and and I think for us you know we we had one particular session with a client of ours uh, Harvard Business Publishing actually um where where like their employees just like For, for the first time we, we designed a course where their employees were like, yes, we would much rather take this instead of a video course. And I think for us, that was sort of the earliest indication like, okay, this actually is like a model that works, right? And we've developed sort of a new content medium that, that could have a lot of potential. That's amazing. So there's this often undiscussed gap between you, you have an idea and you've built a you know, very early version of the product and you're validating your assumptions. And then later on, maybe you have partnerships with Fortune 500s or great NGOs. Um, but could, could you talk about how you created some of that early traction and what sort of creative things you and your team had to do to, to get Arist into the hands of, of its first users? Yeah, without a doubt. So, so um, you know, Aris is a course creation and delivery platform. So for us initially, we're like, oh, we'll just, you know, We'll just give this platform to some clients. They'll make courses and deploy them, and then like we'll be good to go, and they'll love it, and then we'll be like golden, right? And um, that's really just not 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 how it ended up working out. Um, yeah. So for for us, in terms of getting the first clients, we we did a lot of crazy shit. So for first off, we um uh, at one point we printed out about a hundred posters, like massive posters. Um, and initially, our goal was just to get like Harvard as a client, right? Because Harvard is a leader, um, you know, a leader in corporate learning, and also you know, a leader in, le in learning generally. Really cool. Like, if we can get like a buy the buy-in of a few professors or the buy-in of like a department at Harvard, we could, you know, that that would give us a good launch pad to then go to corporates and say, hey, Harvard's using this, so let's, you know, let, 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 let's partner. Um, so we ended up printing out a bunch of massive posters and putting them up all over Harvard's campus. Um, and so Harvard for, for a, a solid period of time just had a ton of random heiress posters, like, in, and like, we, we couldn't put them in obvious places because they get taken down. So they'd be like in the men's bathroom or like, or, or like in like, you know, r r really sort of uh, thoughtful places. Um, that actually ended up uh, both getting a, a few, you know, we, it, it worked. We got a few Harvard professors on board as, as um, you know, as initial case studies and Harvard Business Publishing did end up being a client, um, you know. Probably not for the, for that reason, but but uh, you know the, 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 you know as part of our effort to get them as a client, you know it did work out. You know what what what, what I found interesting with those initial stage clients is, you know, oftentimes and I think this is a mistake that we made. We went out and tried to to go wide, right? We tried to reach out to as many clients as possible to see if we could get a hit, um, and it worked out in some cases, right? Like we cold emailed uh, about I think. I don't know, five or 600 uh, chief learning officers and ended up getting Pepsi, like the chief learning officer of Pepsi agreed to do a pilot with us. Um, and part, I think, is we were young and like you can really leverage the fact that like you're young and especially like these old industries um, where, where like, you know, people are, are on average like over the age of like 40 or 50. You can really leverage the fact that you're young and, and disrupting this industry to, to get a lot of traction. Um, but, but, but I think for, for us, what's been working a lot recently is just saying like, 
okay, we, we have this one dream client and we want this one dream client to come on board and really, really scale up. Um, you know, we're, we're now, um, and we, 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 we did that with one specific client that I, I can't disclose currently, but you know, they're, they're one of the largest companies in the world. Um, and we, we, at the beginning of the summer said, okay, like at the, by, by the end of the summer, we want this one dream client to, to convert. And then we essentially dedicated all of our resources to creating as many inroads to that one dream client and really figuring out who the point person was within that client, uh, you know, that, that would be willing to pilot. And, um, and, 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 you know, it worked out from there. So I would recommend like really focusing and really thinking about like, who is the one dream client that, that you want to pilot your product? Um, what type of outcomes do you want from them? And who is the decision maker that you want to reach? And, and, and through some way or another, you will end up reaching them. Terrific. Talking about um, absolutely like dream clients, uh, you guys just launched a partnership with, with Listos California. Um, and for those of you uh, that don't know, that's a campaign started um, by the state of California meant to dramatically increase uh, disaster preparedness in areas impacted by wildfires. And we just saw, again, uh, dramatic images coming from San Francisco today, uh, dramatic and traumatic um, uh, that that arose from the impacts of wildfires. So first of all, congratulations uh, for landing them as a client and doing some impactful work there. But could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure thing. Um, yes. So essentially, the state of California um, was facing a little bit of an issue right after COVID-19 hit, right? So Governor Newsom uh, had uh, launched this, uh, I think it's like a five or $6 million campaign uh, to educate as many Californians as possible about disaster preparedness. And, um, and the issue is, is that, you know, in California, about a million to two residents lack access to the internet um, or, or, or are disconnected from a lot of traditional educational resources. Um, and so they were, you know, they were scrambling to, to find a way to, to train people, um, you know, using, um, using some, some digital solution. Um, what, what we started realizing was that, um, you know, a lot of organizations pre-COVID were using in-person training, right? So like having somebody speak at a library or speak at a, at a school for really, really mission critical, uh, you know, training needs like, like disaster preparedness. Um, and so right after COVID-19 hit, uh, we, we ran, uh, you know, a bunch of Twitter ads focused on, on showcasing some of our work with really, really mission critical use cases. And we actually ended up helping a number of nonprofits deploy COVID-19 training in Sudan um, and, and Uganda and a number of other uh, places, you know, hard to reach places globally. Um, and, and, yeah, the state of California heard about that, uh, signed on, um, and, uh, and, you know, they, they were able to scale up very, very quickly. And uh, yeah, we, 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 we were, you know, really thrilled to have them as a partner. It's incredibly timely that you 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 developed a product like this, a saleable product that you know can be shipped without you know without a lot of friction, and you developed it at a time when institutions and you know countries um, are are going through a change that was unexpected. You know, who could have predicted that for the past couple of years, California would be you know absolutely battered by wildfires that you know maybe a decade ago would have defied imagination. So it's great to build a product like that that can create such an impact on on a wide scale relatively quickly. Um, you know, and I think one thing that I particularly like about Arist is that you're fundamentally disrupting the paradigm that impact is incompatible with top line or bottom line. You know, you're generating revenue and you're doing good at the same time. So how would you advise founders who, who are trying to create impact and who are impact minded as they, as they go on about starting their ventures? Yeah. So what, what I noticed is, is that a lot of, uh, a lot of founders who are oriented on impact forget to charge, right? I mean, I mean, fundamentally, and, and I think we, we struggled with this as well. Initially, we, um, you know, we, we were like, oh, we're just going to give this platform away for free. 
Um, and that, that was, you know, that was our, our focus was on usage and just giving the platform away for free and having as many people as possible take, take errors courses initially. What we started realizing is, is that, you know, when you're creating an impact, you are still providing an immense amount of value to somebody, right? Um, so, so one great example is we're currently working with a, with a large um, multinational food chain uh, to, to, you know, start training their farmers um, and, and start providing their farmers with like really, you know, like basic skills training. Um, and, and what we find interesting about that use case is like, you know, the, the, these farmers have no way of getting educated, right? Literally except for their phone, right? Um, and, and so we're able to, to work with this corporate partner to provide them with a lot of the basic skills and hopefully, you know, as time goes on, more complex skills that they need. Um, but this corporate partner benefits because more educated farmers at the end of the day means better, you know, crop yields, um, you, you know, you know uh, more, more innovative farming practices, et cetera. Um, and, and, and so... You know, at the end of the day, whenever you make an impact, somebody benefits, right? Um, and, and, and it's usually two parties that benefit, but, but, but both, both the person, um, you know, who benefits directly, right? So like with the state of California, the person who benefits is both, you know, the, um, you know, the, the, whoever is receiving the training, but also the state, right? Because for, for the state has a vested interest in ensuring that people don't lose their homes and, and, and that people, you know, don't wildfires and, and, and that people sort of are very considerate when it comes to disaster preparedness. So usually, um, you know, when, when you have two parties involved that, that, that both have a vested interest in, in making something happen, one of them usually has the ability to pay, right? And, and again, like we are providing value. We do have fixed costs. We do need to charge, for, you know, for, for what we're doing, not only because, because it's important to us as a business, but also because, you know, the more we charge, the more we can help other, other organizations and other companies, right? So I, I, um, I, I, and again, what, one last thing that, that I'll mention on this end is that if you think long and hard enough, you can develop business models where everybody wins, right? That, 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 that is within the realm of possibility. Unfortunately, I find that people often move too fast, right? And, and, and create business models where, where, where somebody gets hurt. Uh, but again, like it's just a matter of, 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 of you know, consideration. Awesome. And I think the, the quote that um, you can design business models um, where everybody wins, that, that's something that we should all take, take away from this podcast. Um, you, you mentioned um, that maybe slowing down um, might be a good idea and, and thinking hard about what kind of business you build um, and then hopefully coming up with a concept that enables you to, to get gratification both um, on the bottom line um, and uh, sort of from an ethical perspective and from an impact-driven um, um, perspective. But uh, when we talk about sort of thinking about the company and, and setting something up, um, can you talk a little bit about sort of your journey um, to, to prepping a company for seed and your thoughts about that? Yeah, without a doubt. Um, so, so for us, um, you know, w w one thing that, that I wish I had known when starting Eris is like what, what are the benchmarks that help can can help prepare my company for like pre-seeds, you know, series seeds, series A, et cetera. Um, and, and so, you know, what we found is that, you know, pre-seed rounds are typically about, you know, 250 or like on the low end about, you know, 100 to, to, to 500,000, right? Um, and, and, uh, and essentially what you need at, at, at pre-seed is just um, enough conviction from, uh, from, from your research pilots and, and a relatively clear vision for who you're targeting, how you're gonna target them and how you're gonna sell. Right when we raised our pre-seed round, we had no revenue, um, and we're not going to have revenue for another six to nine months. Um, and and we raised uh, primarily based based off of our vision and and you know 
and, and we, we, I really suggest raising from experts at that stage too, right? Having, having experts in, in your very, very specific industry invest early on helps a ton. And for us, we had a number of chief learning officers um, and experts in the corporate learning space invest that, that made the rest of our you know, rounds much easier. Um, and uh, yeah, so we, we, you know, we ended up raising about 235,000 at the pre-seed stage. Um, and and you know, what we then learned is that the next metric that we need to hit um, was having about $30,000 in, in monthly revenue. And, and once you have about $30,000 in monthly revenue, that's when you can start raising a seed round usually. And, and again, like this is generalizing because a lot, of, a lot of companies that I know are able to raise seed rounds with no revenue. Uh, but for us, given that the education space is not something, and especially corporate learning is not something that a lot of VCs know about, those were the metrics that we needed to hit, right? And then we needed to hit like growth metrics of about, you know, 40 to 60% a month. Um, and so, you know, what, what we did from there is we worked backwards, right? We said like, cool, if, if we need to hit, you know, for example, 30,000 monthly revenue in August, then we need to hit about 20,000 monthly revenue the month before that, 10,000 the month before that, 5,000 the month before that. And, and so we had a very, very clear picture of like, this month we need to sell this number of clients at, at this amount. Um, and then and we even broke it down like by the day and by the week, right? So I remember like in, uh, in uh, I believe it was June. Yeah, like in, in June, our revenue target was like 10,000, right? So we were like, cool, we need to sell like just two pilot packages at $5,000 each and focus all of our efforts and resources on that. Um, and, and then when you break it down that way, like it makes everything so much easier. Um, for, for us, we also, you know, I strongly recommend applying and checking out Y Combinator. Um, we, we applied to Y Combinator, I got in, um, and we're part of the summer batch and, and that helped immensely in fundraising. Uh, cause, cause you know, a, a big portion of fundraising is, is having a level of urgency at the seed stage, right. And, and giving investors a reason to put in money now and not in like two months, right. Cause investors also have a tendency to drag things sometimes. Um, and, and, and so Y Combinator really creates that urgency and, and um, I think helped us out a ton. Talk a little bit more about your experience uh, with Y Combinator and your peers there also doing it in the first ever remote batch, if I'm not wrong, right? Yep, that's right. Yeah. So yeah, we, we were part of YC's first remote batch. Um, yeah, it, you know, for, for, for us, it was a really, really incredible experience. I think um, there are so many aspects and, and, and the way I see it is this, right? Before Y Combinator, we were, you know, we had some money in the bank, right, from our pre-seed raise, but we were still sort of trying to prove the concept and, and kind of flailing, right? Um, y Combinator puts you, because you have like three months, right, to, to like grow your business to the point where, where, where it, it seems like a good bet for investors, um, you really have to sort of tighten all of your school, screws, like get all of your ducks in a row and, um, and, and really narrow down like who is it that you're selling to? What is the core, like the core uh, you know, value of your product? Um, and, and, and how can you sort of, Put those two together in, in a narrative that, 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 that that's appealing. So, um, for for us, you know, what YC essentially consisted of, uh, you know, a, a series of lectures that took place on Tuesdays and, and Thursdays um, that were really beneficial. Like everybody from, uh, you know, the founders of Airbnb to, to Mark Anderson spoke, and, and then lots of both one-on-one -on -one guidance and small group guidance from from YC's partners. Um, and, and so it was it was super beneficial for us. Um, and uh, I think the fact that it was remote made it even better, mainly because it made it accessible to the people who wouldn't have been able to go to SF and also no commute times meant that we could just work more. 
So, yeah, Michael, I mean, you, on your talks about fundraising, you brought up something that a lot of people missed early on, which is that you're not just looking for capital, you're looking for helpfulness. So it was great that you were able to bring on, you know, early investors who were familiar with your space and, and you know, who knew how to make the right introductions um, to, to create positive outcomes for Arist. Um, and it's also important to be mindful of quantitative metrics early on, which is something that a lot of startups lose sight on. So um, could you speak about how you went about finding your first investors? Were they warm introductions? Did you go via cold email? Um, and how, how did you manage that process? Yeah, sure thing. So, so, you know, one important piece of context is that, you know, I, I up to that point had, you know, practically no personal network. Um, you know, if a, a, lot of, a lot of founders that I know, and, and you know, and good for them, you know, they have, they have family and friends I mean, networks of family and friends that they can reach out to for, for funding. And, you know, a, a lot of people that I know will cobble together like a series of, you know, four twenty five thousand dollars checks from like, you know, their uncle or like, like some, some other family friends and like, you know, it's good to go for them. Uh, for us, you know, we really didn't have that luxury, right? So um, the way that we found our, our very first investor was, uh, you know, my, my college had uh, started hosting these office hours with notable alumni. Um, and I, I, you know, and most of the alumni were in no way relevant to what we were doing, right, with Eris, because, I mean, what we were doing with Eris is, like, very, very niche with corp within corporate learning. What we started realizing was that everybody knows somebody in HR or, or corporate learning, right? And the reason being is, like, you know, every, everybody has to learn while they're on the job, and so everybody has that interaction at some point. Um, and so what we started doing is we literally just started going to every single alumni event in every single alumni office hours that, that you know, Babson put on. Um, and what happened is, you know, most of those were duds. Like I, I went to maybe like 20 of them, most of them, or like yeah, 10 or 20 of them, most of them were like not super helpful. Uh, but one of them was super helpful. One of them was this guy, Derek, who, who is also now an investor in Aris and has been an incredible, uh, you know, support to us. Um, you know, Derek introduced, he, he like instantly got it. Um, and he, he was, at that point, he was the CEO of ZoomInfo. Now he's the CEO of a company called uh, Cloudant, which is owned by IBM. And he was like, hey, you know, my friend Jamie would love to hear about this. So he introduced this to, my friend, to, to his friend Jamie, uh, who was a you know, VC in, in Boston. Jamie was like, you know what, I'm not really interested in this. Let me introduce you to my friend Sarah, uh, who was also a VC. Sarah was like, you know what, this is not a good fit for us, but let me introduce you to my friend Larry. And Larry was like, you know what, like, I, I might invest a little bit later, but let me introduce you to my friend Kirsten. Kirsten happened to be the former uh, you know, chief operating officer of Cornerstone On Demand, which is the largest corporate learning company uh, in the world, I believe, at this point. Uh, they're about a $4 billion company used by you know, over half of the Fortune 500. And uh, Kirsten um, invested on the spot. And then Larry invested shortly thereafter. Um, and, and so like, that was like what, like a sixth degree connection or like a fifth degree connection. Um, and so just like pounding the pavement and, and asking people for introductions to you know, literally just asking the question, like, who do you think would be interested in this? Who, who should I talk to? You can, you can do that as a student and people will love, would love to introduce you, right? So really, really leverage that. I think that's, that you mentioned two interesting things there, right? If, you, if we talk about the, the downsides and upsides of being a student founder, right? You always have a little bit of the benefit of adopt as a student and people are much more likely to, to give you favors and in write introductions because you're not yet... Um, that founder is seeking his next financing round, seeking his back a big exit, but you're um, sort of the student entrepreneur that's mission driven and a hustler. So people might be more inclined to help you. And the second one is, is the importance of perseverance, right? Um, just doing things uh, that don't scale to speak in YC language, um, but, uh, but just like going to events, meeting people. Um, and, and a lot of that might be... Um, wasted time um but if it works out once um it worked out 
uh, as a whole. So um, I think that's a really telling and inspirational story. Awesome. Yeah. yeah no, and, and YC, has, YC has tons of good guidance on, on that as well, um, which I, yeah, I highly recommend referencing. Uh, the YC's, like, um, it, YC's documentation about how to build a startup uh, was sort of our, our Bible in many ways as we were building Eris. At the point of recording, we're just under two months out from the November 2020 election, one of the most storied elections in American history. Eris recently partnered with the Pointer Institute to help educate over 100,000 first-time voters on how to prep for the polls and identify misinformation. Hats off to you and your team on that one. You know, could you tell us a little bit more about how your learnings led to this development with Pointer and how you use them going forward? Yeah, sure thing. Um, so, so what happened is, uh, you know, a- after we launched the course of the state of California, um, we, we started realizing that a lot of other organizations were essentially struggling to, to rapidly train people at scale, right? And, and the reason for that is, you know, if you post a video on YouTube um, that, that's semi-educational, um, you know, depending on how well it's produced, it might, it might receive a decent amount of views, but it's really, really hard to train, like, like and meaningfully train and engage with, you know, hundreds of thousands of people at scale um, and, and genuinely give them the skills that they need to, to, to complete a certain task or, 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 or just build their knowledge. Um, and so essentially what happened is, um, you know, Facebook, uh, you know, Facebook is now very, very focused on uh, stopping misinformation. Right, especially as as the election um, you know is coming up, they've limited uh, you know the, they've limited political ads significantly. Have added added tons of fact checking tools, uh, but the fundamental issue is is that a lot of first time voters in particular really really don't know how to spot misinformation on social media, um, and so you know Pointer uh, being one of the world's leading misinformation um, you know a- anti misinformation organizations, right? They they um, are the organization behind Politifact and a lot of other really fantastic um, you know organizations and, and, and brands, um, you know, Facebook sort of tasks Pointer with this mission to, you know, help teach about 100,000 first-time voters about how to spot misinformation on social media. Um, and so, you know, Pointer had heard about Eris and uh, they very quickly identified text message courses as a perfect way to, you know, in, in a very light touch way to meaningfully engage with first-time voters and give them the, the information that they needed on a regular basis. Um, and, and so, you know, uh, yeah, P- P- Pointer was, uh, I think, one of, you know, so today it's, it's been one of our most successful partnerships, but it's also been one of our fastest partnerships. Um, from the moment that they reached out to us, the moment that they launched, uh, you know, their, their program uh, actually two days ago, um, you know, it, they, they, it took, I think, like a month or two. So it was super quick. Um, and, uh, and, and they're now, you know, they're now uh, going to be using Eris to train, you know, a ridiculous number of people on election misinformation, which we hope will make a very, very meaningful impact. Um, you know, a lot of the research uh, and, and a lot of our course model in general is based on, um, you know, some studies from Stanford and UPenn indicating that text messages are a really powerful tool for changing behavior. And, and so we really hope that that this course will, will you know, meaningfully uh, change the behavior um, and, and provide a lot of uh, benefit to, to first-time voters who may be feeling lost during this election. When you when you go uh, to bed at night, and, and this is not supposed to go down a creepy angle, um, but and you think about the work that you did um, for for Eris over the day, um, and maybe remember your days uh, where you were still at college pursuing academia. Tell us a little bit about the contrast um, of of how it feels to put in. Uh, a 16, 18 hour a day working for your venture and how, how that might compare um, to, to working at school um, and how you stay motivated and hungry um, 
with the necessary perseverance. Whoops, sorry, I was muted. Well, one thing that I'll very quickly mention is that, um, you know, at, at the early stages, I, I remember having a conversation with, with a, a friend of mine who's also also a founder, and, and he, he was very upset that I, that he, he felt like I wasn't putting enough work in at the early stages to make Eris a success. Um, and, and I remember telling him like, hey man, like I, I am putting in uh, enough sort of work I, I, I'm, you know, the, the effort that I'm currently putting in is proportional with my conviction currently. And as my conviction grows, I'm, you know, my effort will proportionally increase, um, which makes sense because, you know, experiments take time, right? Like validating a product and really understanding if there's a fit for, for the product that you're creating in the market takes time and it's not something that you can rush. Um, and, and, and so I think, you know, at the initial stages, I really wasn't putting in more than maybe two or three hours a day on Ares. And that slowly grew to like, you know, six hours a day. Um, you know, while I was studying abroad um, in Russia, India, and China, I, uh, you know, the, it ended up working out pretty well because I, I would, you know, I, was, I would work uh, or I, I would go to school during the day and then I would just work from like, you know, 8 p.m. to, to 2 a.m. Um, but, but I think, uh, you know, recently, especially, um, you know, since COVID-19 hit, it, it's, been, it's been a ton of work. And, and I, I think, I think um, one of the things that's not talked about enough is just how psychologically difficult founding a company is, right? I, I believe Patrick Collison has, has sort of a great quote, and I'm, I'm going to paraphrase him. And Patrick Collison is, is the, uh, one of the co-founders of Stripe, which is now a huge payment processing company uh, that, that YC also you know, helps start. Um, and Patrick Collison has a great, great quote that essentially like starting a company is, is a certain level of insanity, right? Because you have to believe that this thing that's in your mind that doesn't yet exist should exist and will exist and will exist at a very, very large scale even though you have absolutely no data to prove that yet, right? Um, and, and, and so, and, and so, you know, it does require a certain level of, of delusion, right? Because you have to firmly believe that, that like what you're doing is is actually like important and meaningful and, and like should exist. Um, so, so, so I think you know th there was a point right after COVID nineteen hit where um, I remember like March thirty first. So it was two weeks after COVID nineteen hit, and like I got sent back home uh, from school where I, I firmly believe that Eris was going to collapse, right? Because all of our corporate clients stopped talking to us. Um, you know, th there was a sort of a really meaningful market crash. Um, and uh, I just didn't know if we were going to make it through. Um, and, and in those moments, um, the only thing you can really do is just bet on yourself, right? And, 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 and try, to, try to get through and realize that things can change very, very quickly. Um, and, and the reality was, is, you know, on, on August 31st, um, uh, sorry, sorry. On, on March 31st, you know, I thought the company was going to collapse and like I, I was super pessimistic. Less than four weeks later, um, we had gotten into YC um, and, and had our first month of revenue, right? Because we, we just hustled and, and, and focused on, on turning the business around and it, it, it forced us to really find a market for the product. Um, so, so I think, you know, like the life of a startup founder is not glamorous, right? Whatsoever. Like most of your time is spent sending a shit ton of emails, right? Reaching out to a ton of people, telling, like saying the same shit over and over and over again, right? I mean, for this last funding round, I, I said uh, the exact same thing to investors exactly like 57 times, right? But, but that, that's, you know, that's just sort of what it is. You just, you, I mean, it's repetitive, it's boring, uh, but at the end of the day, you get to build something beautiful. And that, that, that's the fun part of it. I think a good way of phrasing it is as a founder, you for a while have to live the life that no one wants to live to ultimately that live the life that everyone wants to live. And in the meanwhile, you hopefully um, sort of give birth to something that 
brings an enormous amount of value to everyone that uh, was blessed enough to to accompany you um, down down the story of bringing it up. Um, so I think this is a this is a great story, um, and thank you so much for sharing. Yeah, without a doubt. And then one last point that I'll make on that: you know, entrepreneurship at the end of the day is applied problem solving and and, and you know applied creativity, right? You you have to be deeply passionate about the things that that uh, you know you're working on. You have to be deeply creative in your solutions and, and, and you know approach problems in a, way that, in a way that nobody else is. But you also have to genuinely love the act of problem solving. Um, and, and I think that that's one thing that, that I recommend is if you focus during your startup um, you know journey on on just solving the next problem and, and and just thinking about you know everything that comes up how do you how do we solve this problem in a way that's 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 sort of most efficient and effective uh, things become a lot easier and you can view, view things as much more of a process and much less as sort of uh, the result of chance right Thank you so much, Michael, um, and we wish you all the best with Arist. Uh, you have us convinced for sure, and you uh, you provided um, this podcast with an incredible first episode, at least from your side and, and all the insights you provided. So good luck on your journey, and we'll make sure to be tracking it, and I can't, uh, can't wait to engage with your product, hopefully soon enough. Awesome. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. It was, it was great meeting you both. Thanks so much for listening. You can subscribe to Captable Cast wherever you get your podcasts. Be on the lookout for new content on Medium and at foundersexcel.com. If you're an early stage founder, investor, or just a curious listener, we'd love to hear from you. Our doors are always open. I'm Scott Smith, and you've been listening to Captable Cast. Cap